0: 2 Timothy 4.1, Paul writing to Timothy says, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead and by his appearing and his kingdom. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions, and will turn away from listening to the truth, and they'll wander off into myths. As for you, as for you, Timothy, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Would you raise your hand if you've heard these words, that these words are familiar to you? I'm just curious. Raise your hand if you've either heard a sermon, you've read these words, these are familiar. Okay, so I'm not operating for the most part from a uh, in, in a communication with people who aren 't familiar with these, and so chances are you already know what i 'm about to share because there 's nothing new under the sun i don 't have some new insight on this, but i 'm going to tell you, I want to stir up your minds, your pure minds by way of remembrance, as peter said i want to I want to highlight something you already know because I believe if we 're not continuously keeping this before us, the drift that is happening in the modern church is moving away in a complete opposite direction of the very things that Paul says here. That we are literally in the big C church, and at least in the West, we are abandoning these commands that Paul gave to Timothy, and these commands that Paul gave to Timothy are ours to steward. That these aren't just simply, it's not a private conversation between the apostle and his protege, Timothy, that this is the Word of God. So it's instructional to all of us with a particular emphasis on those who lead in the kingdom, whether they be pastors or prophets or evangelists or teachers or parents leading their children. Most of you in the room are influencing somebody else in the kingdom. And so we are not allowed to just kind of dismiss this as ancient counsel from a prophet, excuse me, an apostle to a pastor. This is binding on us as individuals and it's binding on us as a local assembly and it's binding on the whole church as we want to finish our race as well, like Paul said. And so let's talk about what it means to breathe the Bible. What does it mean? I mean, does that mean we, we stay in an office all day long, eight hours a day, and we're flipping through the pages of Scripture and all we do is read? That's not what it means. What it means is that we intentionally take in God's written word to the extent that it begins to flavor who we are. It begins to hang on us like an aroma, and wherever we go, we're not leaving our Bible in the the house or in the car or in some other place or at the church because the Bible is within us. We are taking it in regularly, and we're breathing it out regularly, and so let's start with the first two verses, and this is what I call the charge to our generation. I want us to hear this as a generation. I want you to think, no matter how old or young you are, we're all in this generation together, and here is the charge that was given 2,000 years ago, but it's binding on us. So what does it involve? First of all, I want you to know the intensity of the calling that we find in verse number one. Check this out. Listen to how Paul opens up everything he's about to say. He says to Timothy, I charge you. So it's a formal charge. He's calling Timothy into accountability over this. I charge you in the presence of God. And of Christ Jesus. And then he describes Jesus as the, the one who judges the living and the dead. And then he invokes the second coming by his appearing and the establishing of his kingdom. So before Paul ever says anything, he does something that he rarely does in Scripture. He prefaces all he is about to say with this intense context of saying, I am calling you into accountability, young Timothy. And Timothy was probably in his 40s, a young pastor, a little bit timid, not necessarily bold in his demeanor. But Paul is saying, I'm calling you into accountability. Everything I'm about to say, Timothy, I want you to know I'm writing it as we both stand in the presence of God Almighty, in the presence of His Son, Jesus Christ, who is the one who will judge you, Timothy, and He will judge me, Timothy. And I want you to know the context for all of this is the kingdom that Jesus is going to establish when He comes again. So this is not a side issue that Paul was about to give Timothy. Therefore, my radar goes off. When I read these verses, if I didn't know what was coming, I could read verse 1 and say, he is talking about something that is intense and serious. Okay, Paul, tell us what it is. Well, he begins to in verse number 2. The next thing that Paul writes is this, preach the word. Preach the word. And Timothy, be ready to preach the word in season when it's convenient and out of season when you are not in a convenient place. So, let's pause here for a minute because I don't want to assume that we all understand what Paul is saying here. Now, first of all, we've got to answer the question, when Paul was writing Timothy, what was the word? Because the New Testament was not fully completed, although some of the writings were there. Paul's probably talking primarily about the Hebrew Scriptures, Even though Timothy was saved as a Gentile, he is, or half-Gentile, he is bound to the revelation of what we call the Old Testament. So there would have been that. Paul refers in chapter number 3 of this book, I think in verse 15, to the sacred writings. And so there was an understood uh, gathering or uh, a containment of written writings that would have been viewed in that time as the Word of God. The authoritative word, it would have included the Old Testament, the writing of the law, the writing of the prophets, the writing of the poetical and historical books. But even by the time Paul is dying, there were some writings that were already available that were regarded as the word of God. And what Paul is telling Timothy is this. He's saying, I want you to take the authoritative written word of God and I want that to be your message. The gospel of Jesus Christ, the record of Christ's life his death on the cross, his resurrection, his ascension. And remember, Jesus had taught his disciples, teach the people all the things that I've commanded you to do. And so what Paul is saying here is, Timothy, you need to be bold and committed in teaching the objective truth of the kingdom. Now, how do we apply that to our day? We apply it to our day very much more simply than they would because we have what we call a canonized body of books, which is the Bible, We have the Bible. We have the Word of God. We have the written communication of heaven inspired by the Holy Spirit. As human authors pin down the words, God's revelation came through them. They wrote it down. It was preserved down through the ages. And what we have, whether it's in a paper form or whether it's in a, a digital form, we have the greatest treasure, the greatest physical treasure that mankind has ever known. It's not silver. It's not gold. It's not jewels. It's none of those things. The greatest physical treasure that mankind has ever been trusted with is the written revelation of God Almighty it is the Bible now friends I know we've been trained by our culture and by plenty of religion to yawn at these things but I want you to think about it this way and I don't have time to deal with it this morning but the amount of people and sacrifice and martyrdom that occurred so that you and I could have a copy of God's word in the English language is astounding That literally people have died over the centuries so that you and I could have a Bible either to read or to ignore. And yet for people that are wanting to obey the written word, we have this call in our lives. Communicate the word of God. Of course he's talking to pastors and leaders and preachers, and we do that here. We're committed. But I don't think it's limited to a man or a woman in a pulpit. I believe that the communication of the written word of God here is that we are to go about and proclaim the truth We are kingdom heralds. We talk about hark the herald angels sing, that H-E-R-A-L-D. Herald just means one who proclaims something publicly. And that's what we're called to do. And we are called to do it in season. That means like right now, you know what I'm doing? I'm preaching the word in season. Nobody is mad at me yet. Nobody's throwing stuff. There's no threat. There's no danger. There's no screaming. There's no uproar or outcry. There's none of that going on. This is an in season. You showed up expecting me to preach the Word. So it's real easy right now. But Paul also says to Timothy, Timothy, do it when it's convenient with all of your heart, but do it when it's not convenient with all of your heart. That means do it in a hostile territory. Do it in a place where they're not going to receive it. Do it at a time where you didn't feel overly prepared, but because you have the Holy Spirit and because you have the Word of God inside of you, release what you've put in there. And friends, I'm going to tell you, that out-of-season word applies to all of us out of season when you're the only Christian in the break room. Out of season when you're the only Christian in the classroom and your professor's an agnostic or an antagonistic atheist. Out of season at the family reunion when you're the Christian weirdo in your family and everybody else is still living that old life that you got delivered from. You do it out of season. But here's the thing we don't go spouting off our own views. We're not called to primarily be uh, moral agents, uh, addressing a moral code. We're not primarily to be political agents, enforcing with all of our words where we stand politically. The, the mandate is preach the word, give the truth, speak the gospel, release the kingdom. That's the call on our lives because everything else is going to fail. Everything else is going to pass away. Everything else has an expiration date, but the truths that are in the word of God are eternal, and that's the message that we've been entrusted with. What does it look like when we're going to do it? Well, Paul gave some specific things to Timothy. He said, Timothy, while you're preaching the word of God, here's what it's going to look like reprove rebuke exhort and timothy as you reprove rebuke and exhort do it with complete patience and teaching and that word teaching indicates doctrine here's something that may help you because again i mentioned earlier we all come from different backgrounds and we may wonder at times why did jeff and billy and dustin and others take so long to get their sermons out on Sundays or on Wednesdays. Most of our messages here are 45 to 55 minutes. And the reason why is because we take very seriously our limited opportunities to impart God's word to you. We want to release truth to you because the world is releasing into your ears and trying to come into your hearts with its message the rest of the week. And so we get a few hours a week and so we emphasize it. But notice what Timothy is told to do. When he's preaching, he's actually commanded to reprove, rebuke, and encourage. Now, let's just get real about the times that we're living in. How many of us have been infected with the spirit of this age and we live in a pre offended society? Everybody's offended. It's like we are offended when people call us into accountability. We're offended when people tell us that there's actually an objective standard by which our lives are measured now and will be measured in eternity. We, we, we feel like we, we are autonomous and nobody can speak into our lives. Nobody can oppose us. Nobody can correct us. Nobody can warn us. And nobody needs to, to counter anything that we've made up our mind that we're going to do. Now, that may not be true about you. I hope it isn't. But that is the spirit of the age. And look. The Bible says that when we are giving the Word of God, that necessarily there will be times when whoever's speaking the Word of God, whether it's formalized in a service like this or whether it's conversation in relationships, one-on-one, discipleship, uh, spousal relationships, parent to child, child to parent, whatever the relationship is, there's going to be times where we are told to correct one another. That's what the word reprove means. That literally, if we're faithful in our relationships with each other as unto the Lord, as Paul said, in the presence of God and Jesus Christ, the judge of the living and the dead, there's going to be times where I need to be corrected, and I have to receive that correction if it is a correction that is founded in the Word of God. And then it goes up, rebuke is a word in the Greek that indicates a warning. So it's not only the correction, it's attached to it a warning that if you don't heed the correction, here's what's going to happen. Now, to balance it out, because some people make a sport of that, some people, all they do is they read, reprove, rebuke, okay, get out of my way, let me find somebody to reprove and rebuke. And that's not the spirit that we operate with. The counterbalance to Timothy is, and encourage them, exhort them with all patience. So in other words, it's not about thundering down, walking around as the fruit inspector general in the kingdom. I see bad fruit, I'm going to reprove you. I see bad fruit over here, I'm going to rebuke you. And that's not our thing. I call it the high, the high sheriff of Christian town. That's turning your badge. Nobody elected you to that position. But the reality is, is if we love one another, and if we truly have a gospel love and a kingdom love for one another, we're going to have occasion to correct and warn one another, but we do it in patience. In other words, most of us don't immediately align the first time we're, we're warned about something or corrected if we're growing in humility we will learn to accept correction not as an affront to us or an assault upon us but as a help sent from God to us and as we learn that sometimes it takes patience from the one doing the reproving or the correcting and when when they do it with doctrine here's the beauty of it there needs to be it's so helpful That when we have the word of God, when we go to reprove or rebuke or correct or warn somebody, it is so helpful to say, here's what I'm saying and here's why. And you give them what it says in the scripture. So when we make moral stands and we make moral stands around here, when we talk to people about such things as human sexuality, we're not giving our opinion. Who cares what our opinion is? Who cares what a pastor thinks or a a priest or a politician thinks? Who cares what they think? I want to know, God, what is your heart on this issue? And where do we discover that? Not by just sitting there and discerning, I think the Lord might be saying this, and we start filling in the blanks. Listen, there are certain issues where God is picture-perfect clear. And human sexuality is one of those issues. And so when we're dealing with single people that perhaps are heterosexually involved with one another prior to their marriage, we go to them and we say, hey, guys, I love you. I don't know if you're aware of this, but your heterosexual activity outside of the bonds of marriage is called fornication. The Bible says it's a sin, and you've got to repent of that. And, and the culture says, oh, my goodness, that's so funny. That's cute. That pastor actually believes that. No, it's not the pastor that believes it. It's the Word of God that says it. And so when we're reproving and rebuking, you know, when we make stands on issues like sanctity of life, it's not a political thing. I'm going to stand regularly enough, and as the Lord leads me, I've promised Him. Anytime He wants me to say anything about the sanctity of unborn children in the womb, it has nothing to do with liberal versus conservative. It's a clear issue in the Word of God that to take an innocent life in the in the womb is a is a murder. It's a straight-up killing and a murder, and clearly God's against that. I don't care what the Republicans or the Democrats think about that. It matters not to me. It's what does the Word of God say. And so we have to correct one another. We have to challenge one another. We have to warn one another, but we do it with patience. We do it not with enablement, but with patience, understanding that if a person's mind and heart are wired one way, sometimes it takes a little while to change that DNA strand. And we have to approach it with the Word of God. So when we are thinking about this issue, this is a charge to our generation of Christians. The younger you are, the more I want you to consider this because I I, I don't want to make a broad generalization, but I actually think this one's probably true. I believe culturally, the older that you are, the more inclined you are to probably give yourself to biblical tenets, biblical understanding, biblical morality. You probably have a higher regard generationally if you're a a baby boomer for the word of God than a lot of maybe Gen Z or millennials do. Why? Because culturally when you were younger, the Bible still at least played some part in our culture. But now we're living in a generation where the Bible is not only not believed in the secular realm, it's being kind of avoided in the context of churches. And so you have tons of Christians, at least by name, that don't have a regard for the word of God. And so this is what I would say to all millennials and Gen Zs, press into the written word of God. I want a prophetic word too, but I'm going to tell you, I'm way more um, open and enabled to receive a prophetic word when the written word is inside of me. God God may be speaking lots of prophetic words to people, but they've never learned his accent because they avoid the Bible. And so when the, 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 literally the written Word of God familiarizes us with the heart of God, with the voice of God, with the will of God, so that when God does give a word by the Spirit in the minute, in the moment, we can recognize, oh, God is speaking there. So go a little bit further with me because look at what Paul, Paul moves from instruction in verses 1 and 2, and now he's going to start prophesying in verses 3 and 4. And here's the changes in our generation, and I, I, will, not, I will not tiptoe around this. We are in the midst of this prophecy that Paul is about to release. He says 2,000 years ago to Timothy, for the time is coming when they will not endure sound teaching. Let's just pause there for a minute. This is a deadly drift from biblical truth. Paul said 2,000 years ago, there is a time coming where they will refuse, neglect, ignore, defy, and oppose. All of those words where it speaks of them uh, not being willing to endure sound doctrine, it carries the element of not just blowing it off, but fighting against it. He's saying there's a time coming in the manifest kingdom of God, among God's people, at least people that profess to know him, there's a time coming where they will absolutely refuse solid theological teaching. I don't think that this is a stretch we've been living in that generation for quite some time we are we are neck deep in that generation and whereas it used to be so easy for the church to be able to look at the culture and say oh their values are not rooted in scripture it's an antichrist spirit in the culture they don't believe the word and the church was at that time still grounded in the word of god but now we can look at the visible church little c churches And we can say, they don't believe the word of God. we say, Jeff, that sounds judgmental. How can you say that? Well, you'll know a tree by its fruit. When you see denominations, when you see um, local churches making decrees and, and allowances that are diametrically opposed to the written word of God, I'm not being judgmental. The Bible judges that. All I'm doing is being an echo of that judgment. In other words, when apostasy hits the local church, when apostasy hits a denomination, we default to what God said about the people living in the time of the judges. Do you remember what he said? Everybody did that which was right in their own mind. And so what we have is when we refuse the objective standard of God's truth, it's a very convenient thing because once we get God's truth out of the way, Who's going to stop me from coming up with my truth? And that's a common phrase. Girl, you go live your truth. What? What is that? Dude's just living out his truth. Friends, come on now. You, You can't have truth A that is the opposite of truth B and both of them still be truths. There's an objective standard for truth and it is what has been attacked from the very beginning by the enemy. Satan in the garden went after what? What God had said? He slithered up the eve, so to speak, and he said, has, "Has God really said that?" And the first temptation that the devil brought to mankind was to doubt what God has said. Satan's so unoriginal. He found something that worked in the garden. And he's been using it ever since. And so what does he want to do? He wants to drop our regard, our esteem, our allegiance to the word, and he wants to generate that, that generation that says we won't have anything to do with sound teaching. And unfortunately, sadly, um, we are in that generation. Which, by the way, from, from a practical standpoint, motivates me all the more to hit this hard and loud. Because if the spirit of the age has crossed that threshold where you're probably not going to turn that tide back generationally you know what i'm doing i'm going for individuals within that generation who can still be convinced that the word of god is true reliable and 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 given to us as a supreme revelation of the heart and the will of god and so when we see this deadly drift look at what the the alternative is once we say i don't want sound doctrine i don't want bible teaching i don't want anybody to tell me what the bible says i don't want to hear that i want to be free it's very common in this day, listen, for people to just say, well, Jesus was all about love. And so I'm, I'm, I'm actually deconstructing my faith. I'm actually just trying to go back to the red letters of what Jesus said. Let me really just reset. And God will show me. And what happens is everybody starts becoming their own interpreter of Scripture. And let me tell you, when you abandon a commitment to objective Scripture and you cherry-pick scriptures you like and reject scriptures you don't like, guess what you've done? You've written your own Bible. You've actually written your own Bible, and you can feel justified and and very... Jonah had enough peace when he was moving out of the will of God at the complete opposite direction. Jonah had enough peace to fall asleep in the bottom of the boat. And that's what's happening in the church today. People are like, man, I've got such peace. Yeah, I don't, I don't listen to the Christianity that I was brought up in, and I don't, I don't have to listen to the Bible thumpers and all of that stuff. And I've just got such peace now because me and God have an understanding, and I finally found who he is and who I am. And what's happened is that individual has abandoned the sound teaching of the Word of God, and they created a God. You know how God made man in his own image? Well, man is now returning the favor. We're making God in our own image. And so what we see here in verse 3 is here's the, here's the alternative. Once they say no to sound teaching, it says they have itching ears and they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. Friends, that is the day we're living in. I don't have to tell you this. I mean, nobody needs their arm twisted on this thing. But when I say no to God's authoritative voice through the word, I'm immediately going to want to be able to be affiliated with something Christianized, something that at least smacks of the kingdom. So what do I do? Well, I search the Internet, and I find some teachers that agree with me. And I accumulate to myself somebody that's going to scratch that nonstop itching in my ear. What does that itch represent? It means there's something I really want to hear. I need somebody to tell me that what I believe is true. And so i got to find somebody that, that, that scratches this itch that I've got. Usually it starts out with a question. They, somebody hears something from the Word of God that sounds too narrow, sounds too rigid, it sounds too confining, it restricts my personal autonomy, it violates my sense of liberty, and in my flesh I don't like that. So I start wondering, is that, is that really true? Is, is somebody really going to talk to me about this behavior in my life? I don't, I don't really like that. I feel judged. And so what people do is they say, I wonder if there's somebody else who agrees with me. And they start to accumulate for themselves teachers' That will endorse their own passions. And there's there's no shortage. Listen, we have massive media ministry here. I'm so grateful for media because, you know, we're propagating, I believe, the authentic message of the kingdom. And so I'm not down on media. We have podcasts. We have TV ministry. We have live stream. We have all of that stuff. So I'm not one of those dudes that thinks media is evil. But what I'm saying is, There are so many podcasters out there that if you really want to find somebody that will tell you what you want to hear, just spend six hours. You'll find a dozen. And you'll find somebody that will affirm your beliefs and and make you feel comfortable in that. And that's the prophecy that Paul gave, and we're in the midst of it. Let me give you this verse from Zechariah in case you think this is new, because this is not a new new tendency of man. It's Zechariah 7, verses 11 through 13, This is what God indicted ancient Israel with. He said, they refused to pay attention and turned a stubborn shoulder and stopped their ears. That means they covered their ears so they might not hear. They made their own hearts diamond hard, lest they should hear the law and the words that the Lord of hosts has sent by his spirit through the former prophets. Therefore, now watch this. Great anger came from the Lord of hosts. And here's what God says in his anger towards those who refuse his word. As I called and they would not hear, so now they call and I will not hear, says the Lord of hosts. So in other words, it's that hardening of a heart thing. It's like when when they hardened their heart and didn't want to hear what God said, God helped them harden their heart and they couldn't hear what God said. That they became reprobate in their hearing, reprobate in their understanding. Why? Because they didn't listen to what God was saying. Friends, that's a big-time warning, and it goes all the way back to the times of Zechariah. Paul preached it in the New Testament times, and now we're having to recognize that we're in that generation again right now in our very own life. So verse number four gives us the end result of individuals, churches, and generations that refuse to regard the written word as authoritative in their life. This is what verse 4 says. Paul says of those people, they will turn away from listening to the truth, and they will wander off into myths. Let me slow down a little bit because I know this is heavy and intense, but I want us to remember something. This is actually happening with people that we know. This is not just some broad theoretical description. This happens to people people that you've worshiped with, people that used to serve alongside of you, people that used to sing or preach or teach or intercessor, and they were fiery for the Lord. And somehow, someway, something got in there, and the serpent hissed, has God really said that? And suddenly, they began to say, I don't like what the Word says. I don't like what those preaching or teaching the Word say. i I bet they're wrong, and they go finding teachers that will validate the error in their hearts. And when they find those teachers, the Bible is very clear here in verse 4, they wander off from truth. They're done. They literally have found something that has become more precious to them than God's eternal truth. What is it? An affirming voice that says yes to their error. And so they like to be affirmed. They like to feel good about what they believe. They don't like to be challenged. So they wander away from the truth of the revelation of God, the written revelation of God, and they move into error, which Paul calls myths. It brings me back to that point. Uh, there's truth and there's deception. And truth, when it comes to the things of the kingdom, always has its source in the heart and the revelation of God. And anything we add to that or detract from that is not a lesser version of truth. It's a lie. Because when you mess with God's word, you invite a curse upon that area wherever you're messing with it. When you take away or add to it, both liberalism and legalism, liberalism takes away from the word of God, legalism adds to the word of God, and there's an anathema pronounced on that. So this is not a... light-hearted thing. This is not something we can be kind of case sirah about. So when we abandon our Bibles, we toss away our stabilizing anchor. We end up throwing our compass overboard. We ditch our oars, we burn our rudder, we lose our way, and the winds of the culture will fill our sails. The winds of error will fill our sails. We've got nothing to guide us, nothing to steer us, nothing to tell us where we are. And is it any wonder that we end up shipwrecked and sunken? Because we've lost our compass, we've lost our rudder, we've lost our anchor. And that's what's happening in the church today. Said, well, Jeff, well, what do we do about it? Well, there's a lot of things that we can proactively do, and I'm not here to give you in the next five minutes a long list of things, but I do want to say this. Whatever we do about it, let me tell you what must be ratcheted up, not just in some written doctrinal statement somewhere, but in our hearts, we have to renew our allegiance to what the Word of God says. And listen, that's not the pastor's job or the preacher's job. It's not the professional vocational minister's job. This is for the Christian. That means we can't just say in lip service, yeah, we believe the Bible. Because the next question, if somebody wants to call you out, it's like, well, what do you believe about the Bible? What do you actually believe? Well, I don't know. I've never read it, but my church believes the Bible. That's not going to help you in the day of deception. It's not going to be a strong enough anchor for you. And so, yes, it's incumbent upon your leaders to speak God's truth and do it without apology, do it in love, do it in patience, but do it in a boldness, not not being yes and no, but being yes when it comes to the word of God. And so here's the need in our generation, and we find it. This is what Paul tells Timothy, and I think that we have plenty of room right now to apply Paul's counsel to Timothy straight under our lives. So what does it look like? This is the need in our generation. This is the need in my heart. This is the need in your heart. This is the need at Newbridge Church in IHOP Atlanta. This is the need at 12 Stone, Hebron, North Metro, Crossroads Baptist, or Reveal Church. This is our need. This is what Paul says. As for you, always be sober-minded and endure suffering. It almost seems like those things are disconnected. Always be sober-minded and endure suffering. And this is in the context of this intense charge to preach the word of God. What is Paul saying? He's saying, Timothy, remain level-headed. Timothy, live with a sobriety. Timothy, you've got to be well-balanced in your thinking. You need to be controlled and stable and unwavering in your mind so you can remain steadfast. I think the reason why this is in there. I don't want to presume to know what God was inspiring Paul to, as the motivation, but I I think we can extract this for ourselves. That there seems to be a tendency, if we're casual about the Word of God, then we will drift from the Word of God. So Paul says to Timothy, you need to be sober-minded. You need to be solid on this. You need to be stable and unwavering. Why am I hitting this so hard? Because we're living in a generation, hear me on this, where even for Christians, the Bible has become optional. For churches, the Bible is optional. For songwriters who presume to write songs in the name of Jesus, they're not checking their Bibles to see if what they're writing, that people are singing every week, is actually scriptural. What are they doing? They're writing down what made them feel good in their quiet moment with God. And, and friends, listen, whether you're a preacher or a songwriter, a parent, a teacher, wherever your role is, if you're going to express anything on behalf of the Lord and attach it to the name of the Lord and insert it into the kingdom of the Lord, check his word. Read the word. No. And he say, well, Jeff, I don't have time for that. Then be quiet. Don't write any songs. Don't preach any sermons. Don't give a prophetic word. Don't intercede on a mic. Take your private thoughts to God, but don't infect the public with a biblically unexamined vocabulary. I say that strongly again. I don't have a single human being in this room or outside of this room in our spiritual family in mind. I'm telling you, it's the spirit of the age. We've sung songs before, and I I, I read the lyric and I I twitch. I'm like, no, 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 no. And and we we have a close enough group where we can dialogue and say, we we probably need to either tweak that lyric or not sing that that stanza. Why? Because we have a high regard for truth. I don't remember who it was, but there was a guy a long time ago uh, who, who said something to the effect of, let somebody else write the laws of a nation, let me write the songs. Because songs influence more than laws. And so, when we're thinking about this, we have to be sober minded. It says endure suffering. Why why did Paul include that? Because, friends, if you're going to be a biblically allegiant Christian, if you're going to walk in truth, if your life is going to be governed by the truth of God's written revelation, if your life is going to be conformed to what the scriptures say and opposed to what the culture says, if there's a division between those two things, you're going to suffer. It could be as something as simple as you're going to be the goofy Christian at work that nobody wants to eat lunch with because you have a biblical view on issues that have become political footballs. And when you give your opinion, you're not really talking politics. You're, you're talking kingdom. You're talking God's truth. You're expressing the heart of the Lord on an issue, but it's politically incorrect. It seems hyper-conservative uh, to those who might think liberally, and so, or maybe it's hyper, hyper-liberal to those that might think conservatively. And so we've, we, we get to this place where we're like, well, I'll just be quiet. Um, if you ever get arrested, you have the right to remain silent, but if you're a Christian, you don't. You don't have the right to live your life silently. You don't have the right to live as an undercover secret service follower of Jesus Christ. Why? Because the body of Christ includes a mouth. When the mouth goes mute, by the way, that's my message in the next service, when the mouth goes mute in a generation, the body of Christ has no legitimate expression of the heart of God. We are a people that communicate. We are a people of words. We're a people of ideas, and ideas are communicated through the expression of our vocabularies, our minds Uh, operating in sync with our mouths, and we speak something. Whatever comes out of our mouth comes out of the contents of our hearts. And if the people have Jesus as the content of their hearts, don't open their mouths, then there is no expression of Jesus in a culture. Verse number five, do the work of an evangelist. So the need in our generation is pay the price and think soberly, but also ensure that this truth that we have is not hidden within the church. Paul, do the work of an evangelist. Uh, Timothy, do the work of an evangelist. Now, we, we t- kind of think of the evangelist as uh, the dude that knocked on the doors in the 90s. and, Hi, I'm Jeff Lyle. I'm from Meadow Baptist Church. It's Tuesday night. We do our church visitation. I want to know, if you died right now, do you know where you would go? <laughs> we used to do that. That's kind of sad now, but we did. We'd knock on every door in a neighborhood, and we'd go do the work of an evangelist. I don't really think that's what Paul's talking about. I think what Paul's talking about is... Um, Releasing to others what you love the most. We talk about what we love the most. And it actually takes a decision to mute ourselves to, in order to refrain from talking about what we love. Um, Super Bowl, I think, is next Sunday? Is that next Sunday? Some of y'all would be. And look, I love sports. I enjoy sports. I'm, I'm, I'm not a sports hater. But it'll be so easy for you to talk about the Niners, if you're a Niners fan, and the Chiefs, I'm rooting for the Chiefs, by the way, if you're a Chiefs fan, it'd be easy. You're going to wear your gear, you're going to do whatever you're going to do. You're going to have some hot wings and some root beer, root beer, right? You're going to have some hot wings and some root beer and your party and all of that. You're going to get your Niners gear on or your, your Kansas City gear on. Why? Because you're a fan. You love that stuff. But listen, that. Nobody's going to have to convince you to do that. It's just what you do, because in that context, it's important to you. But when the church is intimidated out of speaking for Jesus to a culture that is literally dying without him, guys, we need these kind of exhortations. This is where we might need a rebuke. This is where we might need a warning. This is where we might need a reminder that, you know, our primary allegiance is not in this earthly citizenship, but in the King and his kingdom that's coming. So what do we do? We get the word out of the church. Listen, when you go to work, you spend most of your time outside of this place. You're rubbing shoulders with people that don't know Jesus. And God has you rubbing shoulders with them, not so you'll be driven by guilt because you're the, you, I'm the Christian, I gotta, you know, I gotta carry my load. And, no, friend, you talk about what you love. And so Paul is telling Timothy, who was naturally kind of a timid dude, Timothy, don't forget to do the work of the evangelist. And then in the end, and I'm just about done. He says, fulfill your ministry. Fulfill your ministry. Fulfill your ministry. What this generation needs is individuals taking ownership of the assignments given to them by God. We have a collective assignment to advance the gospel. We have a collective assignment to minister and worship and prayer as unto the Lord. We have a collective assignment to go to the nations with the gospel. But that collective assignment is is actually uh, facilitated through individuals carrying out their assignment. And so Paul says to Timothy, Timothy, you have a ministry that was given to you. You have spiritual gifts that were imparted to you. And he says to this, fulfill it. So I'll be 50 on my next birthday. And I I figure I got, let's just say things are really clicking good. I got about 25 more active years. Yeah, I plan on going a long time. So 75, I still want to be doing it 75, Uh, in some fashion what I'm doing right now. I want to be influencing people for the glory of God and holding up the Word of God. Why? Because that's my assignment. I got called on December 14th of 1994, four months after I was saved. It was a Wednesday night, and God commissioned me on a Wednesday night in a little independent Baptist church to proclaim the gospel. He seized me in that moment. I didn't even understand prophetic callings. I didn't understand anything about what was happening, but there's nobody ever in this life that will ever be able to talk me out of what God called me into. And so that owns me. I am to fulfill that. And that word fulfill there in the Greek means bring it to full measure. Bring your assignment to full measure. Don't wait on somebody else to do that for you. Don't expect somebody to make that happen for you. Don't wait for your turn and somebody kicks and flings open the door that's wide for you. The one who commissioned and called you will empower you and he'll dispatch you. But it's got to get to that point where we own that. We own that together. Listen, my calling, there are lots of aspects to it, but my primary calling is to preach the word. That's my calling. That's what God's called me to do. And the more I get down to the last quarter of my life, the more I realize that, that I am not done yet. And we as a generation of believers, we're not done yet. Why? Because verses 6 and 7 bring us to the end, and I'm just going to read these. For I, Paul says, I am already being poured out as a drink offering. Paul said, I know my time is done. But look at what he says. He says, the time of my departure has come. And look at what he's able to say. Under the inspiration of the Spirit, Paul says, I have fought a good fight. I've finished my race. I have kept, and that's a Greek word that means I have guarded. I have watched over the faith. You've all heard it say, hey, keep the faith. It's kind of like a press on, man, be encouraged, whatever, keep the faith. And it comes from this, this phrase, but that's not actually what it means. When Paul said, I have kept the faith, he didn't simply mean, yeah, I didn't, I didn't apostatize and, and renounce Jesus. That's not what he's saying. Paul is literally saying, I guarded the objective faith. I guarded and watched over the com- composition of the gospel. I protected the truth. And so, when Paul is down to the end of his life, this is what he's saying. He's saying, The reason why I can say I finished my race well, the reason why I'm ready to be poured out, the reason why is because I did what I was told to do. And Timothy, you're the next generation. I owed it to you to hand you the faith. Timothy, I'm giving it to you. I've guarded it, I've watched over it, and I'm telling you, you do the same. And when you're done, Timothy, The things that I've taught you among many witnesses, teach others also. Paul said, what I've guarded, I give to you. When you guard it, you give it to the next generation. The word of God is a thick strand of our DNA here. I want you to love that. I don't want you to put up with it or endure it because you have to in order to get to the other stuff that you really like. Get the appetite for the word. If you've lost that appetite for the Word, get on your face before the Lord and say, God, I will open my Bible and as I do, reignite my appetite for the Word of God. If you've never had an appetite for the Word of God, ask Him to impart to you a hunger that is only satisfied by the written revelation of the Word. Will you stand to your feet? Father, we come before you in the same context of Paul charging Timothy in the sight of God and the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ who judges the living and the dead, his name and his kingdom and his appearing. We say, Father, that we know these things are true. Elevate our hungers to where we not only know it with our minds, but we long for it in our hearts. Let this be a community of powerful prophetic revelation. Holy Spirit, we want that. We pursue prophecy. And I say, Lord, with equal zeal, let us pursue the prophetic word, the testimony of Jesus, the revelation that awaits us every day, written in the word of God. Take away our statements that we can't hear from you. Lord, let us remember any time we want to hear from you, we open your book. And with that, God, as we learn your accent, we learn your heart, we know how you are, who you are, and what you want. Then, Lord, let there be a fresh rhema word that comes off of our lives, out of our mouths, and into this generation. Thank you for the gift of Scripture. Thank you that your word is settled in heaven forever, that heaven and earth will pass away, but the word of God endures forever. Thank you for giving us truth. May we treasure it in Jesus' name. Amen.